today's episode of the Alphalist podcast is going to be a very special one. I'm your host, Toby, and my guest today is someone I highly admire. He's the modern Thomas Edison. Welcome, Professor Sebastian Trun. To give you an overview, he moved from Bonn, Germany to California, US. He's a professor in Stanford. He founded Google X and led the Google self-driving efforts. He revolutionized e-learning with Udacity, and now he's building autonomous planes, so-called eVTOLs, at Kitty Hawk. Today... I'll talk to him about the car nation Germany and he, as let's call him the inventor of self-driving cars, looks at it. How competitive we are in the AI and software world, Stanford versus TU Munich, why Sebastian is striving for a brain-computer interface, why he has built the leading online university Udacity and how to tackle machine learning as a modern CTO. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the key challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. In one of the next episodes, I will also talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly's CTO, about WebAssembly and the edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, the New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash Sebastian, you sound like someone who lives his childhood dreams. Is there still something missing you want to do? How did you choose your problems you want to solve and why? What drives you? Well, first, uh, Tobias, thank you for having me in the program. It's, it's always a great pleasure to be um, back in Germany. And in these COVID ages, it all happens via Zoom, which is even better. So back to Germany without the, the flight. For me, that's a, a major revolution. But yeah, I... I've been very fortunate that I've been had a chance to do, do some crazy stuff that I really care about. Um, there's tons of stuff missing, things I would love to do, I have no time to do. But you know what? Um, to be impactful, you have to focus. And how did you choose your focus? I, I do two things in choosing, uh, making my own choices. One is I really care about... Um, making the world a better place. I, I believe that the impact of every human being is measured by how many people uh, were, were positively influenced by the work of a person and by how much. Um, people joke about Silicon Valley as, quote, unquote, making the world a better place, as in making the founders richer. Uh, but I do believe a lot of good happens through technology where we really advance the world and make the world materially better. The second thing for me is I love learning. I, if I'm really good at something, I quit. I don't want to be good. I want to be bad so that I have a chance to really learn uh, new things. In my life, I've been a Stanford professor, so I learned how to become a professor. I've been a, a Google vice president, so I learned how to be an executive at Google at a, at a big company. And I've been a startup CEO. And they're very different learning experiences. And in all of those, I made a lot of mistakes. And which one did you like most? They're hard to compare. It's like, which of your three children do you like the best? I think when I was kind of done with Stanford, it was not because there's any problem with Stanford or being, being a professor, but much more I've learned it. I understood it. I did a good job. It was time to move on, learn something new. Um, I'd say the most painful career is the career of a, of a founder, of a startup captain, because 
at least in the university, you have this kind of level of safety, even if a paper gets rejected, right? It's not that big a deal. But in, in startup land, if you can't get your financing together or your customer disappears, then your company might disappear. And that feels very, very much stronger than, than just not having a paper accepted at a conference. So those um, daily spikes that go up and down, like in the stock market in very crazy times, right? Yeah, and I can tell you, I mean, in the last... 24 months has been a massive number of ups and downs and ups and downs, and they are very emotional. Yeah, with, with planes, the up and downs can be even harder, I guess. Well, they're hopefully more predictable. <laughs> uh, the nice thing about uh, startup land is the downs are all the same, right? It's like the plane landing on the ground, but the, the ups, you can go to the stratosphere, you can go to the mesosphere, you can go to uh, 10 million feet, right? Uh, which you cannot do with a plane. With a plane, you have a fixed ceiling and you won't go any higher. But with a startup company, there's no fixed ceiling. Okay. Um, and I mean, like the starting point of your career, Bonn to Stanford is kind of a, a crazy start already. Uh, how, how did that go? How, tell us more about the journey. I was a, um, a computer science student in Germany, uh, obsessed with artificial intelligence, machine learning, when no one else in the world cared about it. And it turned out my alma mater, University of Bonn, didn't have expertise. So I found a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who was a world expert. And he took me under his wings, first for like an exchange year and later as a research scientist. Um, so for me, the jump to Pittsburgh first before Stanford was actually an easy one because I was offered a faculty position, which is for a junior professor position. And I felt like going to an internationally renowned university had so much more exposure to like differently thinking people, to diversity, one of the, the big topics of the day. And then Stanford, uh, when Stanford called the first time, I said no, it wasn't quite in the cards for me. But the second time I accepted and boy, it's drinking from the firehose. It's like the best thing ever. Silicon Valley is just so incredible in its diversity and its thought leadership in its sheer intellect. Uh, it's just a great place. And then you straight away got into self-driving cars? Yeah, coming to Stanford, uh, I took a job as a tenured professor, which means I was unfireable. Um, just <laughs> German professors tend to be unfireable. And that gave me the freedom to pick a topic that wasn't very popular. And at the time, uh, the US government had just launched this race, this robot race called DARPA Grand Challenge. DARPA is... Um, kind of the, the major funding agency for out there projects in the States. DARPA has invented the internet and the stealth bomber. And now they wanted to invent the self-driving car. And the way they did this, they, they basically launched a competition called the Grand Challenge. The Grand Challenge was a race by which you had to build a robot that on October 8th, 2005, had to drive 130 miles without a driver inside through the Mojave Desert, a California desert. And if you could do this and be the fastest, you would win two million bucks. So I've heard about this. It wasn't very academic. It felt more like a, uh, yeah, it's something that people do. They want to get rich, um, or technology companies do, or car manufacturers do. There were some professors involved. And I decided to take a year off and just do this together with mostly three grad students. So we made um, a robot called Stanley. Stanley is a Volkswagen Touareg. We work with Volkswagen in Germany. A very nice collaboration, and um, and built this thing to be intelligent. And lo and behold, uh, from a field of about a, nearly 200 entrants, it won. 
our Robert Bondes race. And that put me on the map for self-driving car experts. Made you two million richer or? It made Stanford two million bucks. And <laughs> Dean was very happy about the extra funding for the department. Yeah. But in all fairness, I mean, we used Stanford resources and Stanford money to create the entry. It wasn't my personal money. And was it back then more like a hardware or a software game? I mean, I, I can imagine that in 2005, there were like more people working on the hardware level than on the software level. Yeah, Tobias, you're completely right. It was kind of amazing to me, to be honest. The majority of teams built new vehicles. And they would either build vehicles out of existing vehicles, like Carnegie Mellon had this big Humvee where they put big holes in the new air conditioning and a massively new equipment inside. And I looked at this and said, this can't be a hardware race because I knew I could pick up a rental car, like an SUV, and drive this course just fine. So there was nothing missing on the hardware side to drive this course Except, of course, um, when you make a, a machine intelligent, you have to put some sensors on it and some computers. But to me, putting a sensor like a camera on a robot is not that hard, and the computer in the trunk is not that hard. The missing part for me was the driver. I was like the intelligence, the ability to perceive the, um, the terrain, the, the road map or whatever it is, the, 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 the dirt road, and then make driving and, and speed decisions. So we we spent all the time on software, like every waking moment. We, we we did machine learning. We we would take out the car and train it. It would we would program it to watch us people drive, and it would then copy our driving style and try to mimic our decisions as a way to win this race. And how did your driver look then? Was it a collection of sensors or what was it? Well, so we had in the end uh, a robot that had uh, five laser cameras. And the laser camera is a bit like a like a regular camera, but it sends out a light beam and it can measure how far things are away. So it's like a 3D camera. So it gives you a full 3D model of the road surface. And then we had a regular camera. We had some radar that we know from adaptive cruise control. Um, and all these things, these, these sensor inputs, including, very important, GPS. You had like a satellite link to understand where we are. Uh, very similar to your smartphone has a GPS. It knows where it is. Um, All this stuff got fed into a computer box of uh, multiple computers in the trunk. Um, and then it made very simple decisions like turn left, turn right, go straight, speed up, hit the brake. And that was about it. It was very simple. How does this compare to today's drivers, autonomous drivers in cars? It's still the same. Uh, of course, this is 15 years ago and time has passed on. We started the Google self-driving car team. Uh, we built Waymo, um, driven 30 million miles in public streets safely. Uh, but the basic is still the same. If you think of um, when you drive your car, right, your eyes are open and your eyes are your predominant sensor. There might also be some sound sensors because you might want to listen to honks or police cars, but it's mostly your eyes. And then your brain somehow magically processes this data and turns it into hand and foot movement. Like your hands that turn the steering wheel, your foot, is how you interface back to the car. So now, if you take yourself out, okay, we just have to replicate you, okay? How do we do this? Well, we put cameras inside the system to emulate your eyes. And as I mentioned before, there are special purpose cameras that are even more perfect than your own eyes. And then we put a computer to replace your brain. And very similar to the way you've learned driving, We use machine learning to train the computers to learn driving. So how do you learn driving? Um, you learn driving by, by 
putting yourself in a car, either watching other people drive and learn from it. Then at some point you went to driving school and a driving instructor would instruct you and you try it out and you learn that skill by doing, right? You don't learn how to drive a car by just studying a book. Uh, that's impossible. You have to really kind of experience it and understand how these things uh, work together. And then people give you guidance. They would say, oh, okay, there's a red light stop and there's a stop sign stop. And if you don't do it, the instructor would yell at you. So next time you do it. But by and it's, it's you learn how to drive. And that's what the best today's best computers do. They learn, right? So no one programs in all the rules of driving. Instead, we take these cars out and we teach them. We teach them how to drive the same way we would teach a student driver how to drive. And that's a very powerful paradigm. It's the core of what people call artificial intelligence or machine learning. It's a super hot topic. And Tobias, you mentioned this in the beginning as your focus. It's not just for self-driving cars. It's for many, many other jobs that can be assisted by computers. And it's it's incredibly powerful. I, I, we have uh, at Udacity, we teach a curriculum on self-driving cars. Udacity is an online university. Um, and there, the very first project that students built is to find the highway in a camera image. And they use machine learning, and it takes them the better part of a weekend. And then they're able to build their own car and keep it safely on a highway. Crazy. To, to jump a bit to, to economy, Angela Merkel said a few years ago that one out of seven jobs in Germany is directly or indirectly linked to the car industry. Uh, you're from Germany um, and the car industry is so a very German topic. Do you think that the German car manufacturer landscape is well prepared for the upcoming years? Look, when disruption takes place, um, you always wish to be better prepared. Um, the, the leading German manufacturers are very much attuned to the change that's happening not just when it comes to self-driving, but also things like electric and, and other modes. And some even have started investing in, in flight vehicles as a, as a solution to traffic. Um, I believe that the German companies, by and large, are well positioned. They are the leaders in the world for mobility, for um, high-quality uh, and sometimes even affordable transportation in a way that no other country can parallel Germany, to be honest. Maybe Japan comes close. Certainly not the US, in my opinion. Having said this, I'm in constant dialogue uh, with the top companies, BMW, Mercedes, uh, Porsche, and many others. Um, many of them have now worked with me directly through my company, Udacity, where we, where we really help companies to engage in digital transformation through education and upskilling. Um, and all the companies right now including the tier one suppliers like Bosch, have very active projects in these areas to understand what the technology might mean for them. So you think we are on a good track, right? So from my perspective, we are very hardware driven. Um, is the new software world for us maybe a bit challenging and potentially also dangerous? Yeah, that's a, that's a challenge for everybody. If you look back into it, especially German industry, which is, uh, has such amazing players like Krupp or Siemens, uh, so many others, um, It's really transitioning from a hardware world to a software world. And that's where um, where the skill sets are often not the right ones. Where If you have an automotive engineer who's really good in suspensions or, or engines, turning this person into a self-driving car person that can use artificial intelligence to make cars smart really requires, um, yeah, I would say a, a change of skill set, a, a reskilling set. And that's, I think, not just in Germany, where companies worldwide are realizing, wow, With these rapid advances of new technologies, 
we got to make sure we stay on top of it. And it's a challenge for every company. Um, I think every German company that I know of is, 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 um, is working on it. Right? We have uh, Didacity customers ranging from Bosch to Mercedes to BMW to, to Bayer to Airbus um, to Deutsche Telekom, so many others who, who realized, you know what, this is something that's new. Uh, it used to be that technology would grow very slowly and like one indication of lifetime is enough. And now new stuff happens so fast, we have to really kind of from, from the inside out uh, to transform this company every five to 10 years. But you know what? Good companies, good leaders will see this and they will be ahead of the curve and they will survive. Um, Germany is the strongest industry nation in the world. Um, I think they'll absolutely survive. Yeah, I guess so too. Sometimes I'm not like quite sure if I jump into a new car. The, the first thing I always search is uh, how to connect Apple CarPlay <laughs> to that car <laughs> and how to use an alternative user interface um, instead of the car's own interface. That's always a bit strange from my perspective. But apart from that, I'm also kind of impressed if I jump into a car, uh, let's say an Audi, um, and it can read like all the speed signs and everything. I guess it's not all Audi technology, but also companies like Mobileye involved and uh, maybe parts of your technology as well. I, I'm not sure. But yeah, um, that that uh, makes me feel good at that point. Yeah, yes. I mean, you make a great point. Um, the, when you said one in seven people are working directly or indirectly in, in transportation in Germany, there's a, a network of, of supply companies that supply these capabilities from the famous tier one suppliers, Bosch, Continental, and, and similar, into much smaller suppliers um, that really kind of focus on components. The, the OEM, the, the, the company that actually makes the car, is really the company that puts the box together. Um, and that's their contribution. And then, then, of course, passes on to dealerships for selling them. Um, so there's an entire ecosystem. Um, that ecosystem is being disrupted. Um, it is very really true that, that software is playing a bigger and bigger role. So, like, take the Apple Play example. That's a software example, like connecting a phone. Many cars that are being sold today are being sold with one um, entertainment interface, And five years later, the entertainment interface is five years older. That's not true for Tesla. If you buy a Tesla, then like typically once a month, you get an over-the-air update and the entire system changes, right? All of a sudden you have new games in the console. You have new modes. Recently, my favorite that Tesla introduced was called dog mode. Dog mode is a mode where you can keep your Tesla cold, even when you go shopping, um, assuming your dog is in your car. It's not just the dog mode, it's actually a grocery mode. So your, your food doesn't spoil if you keep the mode on. And, and that didn't, wasn't there when I bought the car, but Tesla has found out that, uh, you want to have a relationship with your customer, not just at the time of sale of the car, but through the lifetime of the, of the car itself. And as a result, as a Tesla customer, I feel especially empowered. That also is a sign towards rather aiming for subscription models in the, in the future than uh, for like a one-off price, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I do believe that transportation will be more and more commoditized um, and that we see it with the advent of, of Lyft and Uber and others, which have made car sharing uh, or the use of other people's cars a much more common thing than, than before. And for especially for young people living in cities, I hear very frequently that people don't even want a driver's license anymore. They, they feel like they can just hop into Uber. Um, Uber and Lyft are still somewhat expensive because you have a human driver. If you ever really replace 
hopefully this happens soon, the human driver with a computer, you could arrive at a point where taking a self-driving car as a taxi is cheaper than owning a car. And when that inflection point happens, I think we're going to have a massive transformation of society because then we need many fewer cars in total. Looking forward to it. So I live in Hamburg and crowded streets are somehow horrible for me. But uh, maybe from me back to, back to you and your journey, a bit provocative, but if you were a professor at TU Munich in comparison to Stanford, where do you think you would, you would stand today? I, first of all, I have an enormous respect for the Technical University of Munich, and I have an enormous respect for the German higher education system. I want to just make this very clear. I got a complete free education all the way to PhD in Germany. I had no college debt. When people think of American universities, they often think of the top names like Harvard and Princeton, but they forget that the vast majority of American students goes to really shabby, low-quality universities. And they forget that less than half of the people graduate from those universities. And the other half that don't tend to have crushing college debt and no degree. And that's so much better in Germany. Um, that's something that I think Germany has done very, very well. And Germany is probably, when it comes to education, in the top two or three countries in the world. Um, now, what would be different? I think uh, there is one thing in Stanford which I think is unique. And that is the connection of Stanford to private industry. So my department at Stanford has created not just Google and HP and Yahoo and Rambus, uh, VMware, a whole bunch of NVIDIA, a whole bunch of, of, of companies that has, have made a major impact in the world. And these were often either students or faculty taking time off and creating those companies. In fact, I think the Stanford Computer Science Department has created more wealth and all other computer science department combined, last time I checked, at least when it comes to spin-outs. And that's something that, that I love. I think when I step back a step and ask, like, what is the impact that a person should have as a faculty member? Um, obviously, number one is you should educate people. That's your number one mission. H head of publication and research is really to, to build people. And that's always been my number one mission at Stanford. Um, my graduating students are, are the, the thing I'm most proudest of and, and I've worked hardest on. But beyond this, um, you, should, you should really get to a point where your smart ideas that you have as a researcher really make it into the field and move people's lives ahead. So, for example, at Stanford, I had this idea of building a self-driving car and we competed in the Double Grand Challenge, but just winning the challenge impacted no one's lives except maybe for mine, uh, which doesn't really matter. But it saved no lives. We still had more than a million people dead every year in traffic accidents. And even today, you could say, Sebastian, you haven't changed anyone's life with self-driving cars because they haven't launched yet. But once they launch, traffic will be 10, 100 times as safe. And that means we're going to cut traffic deaths over the next decades by 50, 80, 90 percent. And that means hundreds of thousands fewer funerals. Okay. And I, I mean, I challenge anybody on this podcast to think about Have you ever lost a person in traffic? I would believe you probably know somebody. Certainly, I have lost many people in traffic that I know of. Uh, of. Um, and these are painful moments. So these are things we can avoid. And, and coming back to TU Munich, I think there's super sharp people in uh, TU Munich. And I wish that we had better, better mechanisms to take these great inventions, these great insights that the people have, and really turn them into industries so that eventually they can impact people's lives. 
that's something where I think German academia is a little bit behind, um, where we could just be much more entrepreneurial. So we should rather build like a mix between a university and an incubator in a way. Germany has one program that I really admire. It's called Dual Study. Uh, and it's a program where students jointly work at companies and attend uh, Fachhochschule, a college. And what I admire about this is that these young people learn what kind of skills are required at their job. And they go back to the professor and say, you know what, I don't want to hear about art history or criminal justice classes. I want to hear about the hands-on design skills that I need or the engineering skills that I need. And then the professors, which I really love, they are very willing to say, hey, let's, let's understand how can I really help you as a student to maximize your future career capabilities, your job readiness. And that's something I think it's good. I think sometimes, sometimes in academia, we are very much an ivory tower. We, we do research among ourselves and we publish among ourselves and we talk among ourselves and we forget talking to those who finally should employ our graduates um, and don't really understand what they need. Okay. In those dual studies, there's somehow the, I would say, entrepreneurial spirit sometimes missing, right? Look, you can always criticize and always say it could be better. Uh, I think Germany has done a phenomenally great job moving into uh, Gründerzeit, the founder's age. Um, now, if you go to a German conference, you'll find lots of people and say, I'm a founder. That did not exist when I was a fresh PhD. Uh, when I was a fresh PhD, 1995, people went to Siemens, Deutsche Telekom, Lufthansa, IBM, a few others. Um, but that was it. And now people start companies. And while there's still um, oddities uh, that, that could be improved, I think it's a, it's a great directional progress for Germany. And Germany should be very proud of itself for doing it. Um, there will be things that, that will be good to have. Like one thing we have in the States is we have a much better tax law for, for small companies. Like if you issue a, a stock option to a, a new employee in Germany, the person has to pay a tax out of their own pocket. In the United States, don't. Uh, but I think Germany is going to wake up at some point and realize how stupid that is, and they're going to fix it. Looking forward to that. <laughs> Talking more about universities, so you, you founded your own one with Udacity. Why did you build Udacity in the first place? How did, how did that happen? Udacity was kind of uh, <laughs> built almost by accident. I was um, teaching at Stanford a class on artificial intelligence, which today would be very hot, but back in the day, 2011, 10 years ago, wasn't a hot topic. And I decided to, to put this class online. So I made a little website, say, hey, introduction, Stanford, artificial intelligence. Um, and there was a little link to click where people could sign up and give us their email address. And I sent out exactly one email advertising it to a little distributor of about a thousand professors in my field and saying, hey, look, If your students are interested, they can take a Stanford class. And I expected maybe 500 people to sign up. Like that would have been a large number because back in the day, there weren't more than like 500 graduate students in artificial intelligence worldwide, maybe a thousand. Um, to my total surprise, 160,000 people signed up to this class. Wow. And it became kind of the largest class ever taught. So I, I started teaching this class and of the 160,000 23,000 people finished. Um, 
I taught the same class on Stanford's campus with the same exams and same homework assignments. And we had about 200 students, of which I think 188 finished. But I eventually, um, <laughs> in one afternoon, put a spreadsheet together where I compared the online students with those Stanford super-duper PhD students, well-selected geniuses. And the top 412 people were not at Stanford. The best-faring Stanford student was number 413. And that, to me, was this moment when I realized, wow, there is a worldwide hunger for education. And while Stanford is a great institution with this something like 15,000 or less students, it's not covering the need in the world. So I felt we have to go out and teach the world, not just one institution. When I went to Stanford's deans and, and, and um, president and said, hey, why can't you open Stanford and admit 10 million students? I got a smile. That's not how Stanford works. Stanford thrives in exclusivity. And I, I respect that. But I, I felt, look, if you could really get the best education in the world for free to anybody in the world who wants to learn, you can literally double the world's GDP right there. And that became the mission. That really became the mission to say, let's reach people everywhere. We have, we have programs in the Middle East, uh, a program called One Million Arab Coders, where one million young people, at this point about eight or 60,000, have been trained to be software engineers out of nothing. Um, that's the level of impact that I think is, 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 is really material. And do you think university is the right starting point? Um, don't we have to start earlier with with uh, higher education, with like in, with maths, uh, like teaching people to become special and and pick their future path? Well, so Udacity focuses on uh, on lifelong learning on, on people older than twenty four. Udacity works with a huge number of corporations directly to upskill their staff and pursue digital transformation. And I'd say, um, because I think you're very right, uh, we can't do everything in one company. I think there's certainly an enormous need to rethink what we call K through 12 education, from kindergarten to 12th grade or 13th grade, uh, and really ask the questions, do those kids learn the right skills the right way? And if there's one learning from Udacity, then it is that if you let people go at their own pace, they do better than if you're in a military regime make them all go in lockstep. So one thing we do online with Udacity, we, we, we give our quote-unquote students uh, projects and let them do these pieces of work at their own pace and give them inverse feedback. And that turns to work much, much better than the 18th century methods we still employ in regular classrooms when one teacher stands in front of, in front of 30 students and forces them to go in lockstep. Do you think COVID is actually a chance that this might change now? I believe so. I think the uh, COVID with all the tragedy, um, um, COVID obviously was the very first time that the world jointly experienced the same problem, the same crisis that had never happened before, at least not in, in my lifetime. Um, but what COVID also does is an accelerator. Uh, so so the, the big winners are all the tech companies. Um, The video conferencing companies um, will really transform the way we interact. I, I mentioned, I mean, I love coming to Germany, and to be honest, I feel like I'm hampered right now at this moment talking to you. Uh, and no plane flight required. How cool is that? 
Um, I've run my companies through video conference in the last few months, and it works really, really well. Um, Udacity is stronger than ever before. We just had, by a large margin, our strongest quarter ever. Um, our signups, especially for Fortune 500 companies, is way up because smart CEOs have realized that digitization is now on steroids. It's crazily on steroids. So whatever you thought would happen next two years happens the next quarter. And really sharp CEOs uh, from Bosch to BMW and many others have realized this is the time to push innovation and digitization inside their own companies. Um, in the States, uh, we lost uh, roughly 40 million jobs, four zero million jobs. That's like 20% of the American workforce. That's huge. That's gigantic. And I don't think these jobs will come back the same way they used to be. I don't think we need as many uh, restaurant owners or, or servers or as many taxi drivers as in the past. So there too, I mean, for the normal person on the street, if you want to have a future, this is your chance. This is your time to, to go ahead. This is time to pick up a new skill set, learn that skill set, and find yourself on top of the line as opposed to the end of the line. And why then from university to Kitty Hawk? Ha! Yeah, that's a, a project I've been doing in parallel with my, um, my good friend Larry Page, the co-founder of Google. And it's a, it's a kind of a crazy thing. I think Germany has two very strong projects in the same space. One is called Volocopter, one is called Lilium. They're doing very well. The idea is um, if you leapfrog beyond the self-driving car, you will eventually arrive at the flying car. And just to be precise, it's not a flying car. It doesn't have wheels. It's something that kind of takes off and lands like a helicopter. But we've built uh, vehicles that fly purely electrically, that Every child can fly in terms of complexity, that take off like a drone vertically, that fly horizontally like a plane, that can fly at a range of about 170 kilometers per reserves, which we've demonstrated, and is so quiet if it flies over you won't even hear it. And it's a technology demonstrator. It's not a business yet, uh, but we believe this technology will mature to a level where it really can become a, a, a scalable business. You will work on that until it becomes a scalable business, or <laughs> I hope so. If if Larry doesn't fire me at some point, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from your AI perspective, it could look a bit like the smaller optimization problem. Is that really the case, or flying might be easier than than uh, like actually driving a, a car? Yeah, so I do firmly believe that flying is easier than driving a car, and I have proof of that. Um, For one, if you, um, it's also safer, it turns out. So if you look at the number of commercial deaths in aviation versus cars, like you might have a few hundred a year in, in aviation, you have hundreds of thousands of years in cars. Uh, but it's easier because the moment you're up in the air, like say you're like 300 meters up in the air, all your obstacles are gone, like your bicycles and your kids running around and other cars and curves and streetlights and mailboxes and bushes and trees. All these things have disappeared, and you can basically go in a straight line. And I challenge everybody listening to this, um, people, people fear there might be congestion in the air in the future, and it could be, but the air is so much bigger because you can not just like avoid obstacles left and right, you can also do it vertically. You can go up 10, 20, 50 meters and be a complete different highway. So if you take, for example, a normal highway, an Autobahn in Germany, and it has like three lanes, and you want to make 30 lanes, then all you do is you compile your software to have 30, 30 vertical lanes and you have different lanes in the sky and all of a sudden you have 10 times the capacity 
of your highway. So there's a there's a vision in there that I really believe if if we were able to take urban traffic, city traffic, into the air, we would never ever have a traffic jam again. We would really free the world from traffic. Uh, talking to you somehow feels like the introduction video of Futurama. <laughs> so really impressive how you think about uh, the, the world of traffic. When do you think will we be able to, to, to travel like that? So, so all the companies, and there's at least, I think there's about 450 different projects in this space, and at least 20 or 30 very serious companies, including Boeing and Airbus, um, all of those are in the prototyping stage. Um, so they're all basically built maybe half a dozen vehicles. I think we've built about 150 in total, small number of vehicles, and they're flowing them, and they're all grappling with the question, how can we do make this safely? And safe in aviation means that you work with authorities like EASDA in Europe, like FAA in the United States, and really drill down for every aspect of risk and mitigate every aspect of risk. So that finally you get what's called air within a certification. And that process to go from a concept of an airplane to a certificated aircraft, it takes another three to five years for every single player in the world. And that's happening in Germany right now. I know that uh, Volocopter and, and uh, Lilium are both working with authorities. It's happening here in the States. Uh, I have about three phone calls a week with the FAA, just aimed at the question, what could possibly go wrong and how can we make sure it doesn't go wrong? Okay, so it's a matter of a few years. I think so. And I mean, at some point I predicted that the uh, quote unquote, we call it flying cars, again with this little footnote that it doesn't have wheels, but flying cars will disrupt self-driving cars. And there's an interesting tale here, which is if I'm correct about this, because flying is even self-driving, then self-driving cars might never materialize. They might go straight to flying cars. Think about that. So you think you're, you're just, just skipping a stage. <laughs> Look, we live in a world where, where disruption happens so insanely fast. Let's say um, the last three months with COVID, I think we've all gotten used to video conferencing. And I, I hope that most people realize it actually works really well. And when you compare this to your past business travel, where you fly around Europe or the States to sit in a stinky hotel room to meet the people you want to talk to, you can't even conclude it's better than business travel because Now we can be at a different location on a button press and be done and be home again. If that's the case, we've just disrupted business travel. Think about that. We disrupted business travel. We disrupted airlines in a way that can't be fixed. We disrupted hotels and conference centers in a way that can't be fixed. And it'll be better because now you have what technology always does. You have less friction. You have less friction in the system. Email is less friction than writing a physical letter because the physical letter has to be put in the mailbox and, and shipped somewhere. Whereas email goes electronically. Twitter is less friction than email. TikTok is less friction than, 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 than Twitter. YouTube is less friction than a TV station. Um, and now Zoom or Google Hangouts or Microsoft Teams is less friction than business travel. Think about that. How cool is that? It just happened under our eyes right now. Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, imagining not no longer having to travel from Hamburg to Düsseldorf um, and sleeping there for just an hour of, of, of work meeting is kind of crazy, right? Yeah, and you're saying Hamburg to Düsseldorf. Haha. You know what? I can do this on a bike. I'm talking about New York to Los Angeles, which is, what, 3,000 miles. Um, 
in America, everything's so big that our business trips involve many, many, many hours on a plane, not just a few hours on a train. Germany is so lucky to be small in terms of geography. Um, but yeah, even a Hamburg to Düsseldorf feels like a long trip. Um, I can't tell you how, how many. So I'm a million miler on United. I've, I've flown more than a million miles on United. Can you imagine how many, how much lost time this is in my life? Yeah, it's kind of horrible when you think about it. And, and how much better it will be for for the world um, if we stop doing that, right? Yeah, for global warming, people don't talk about it, but jets are a, a major source of emission for noise, for for so many things. And yeah, I mean, you might be really upset if you're running an airline today. And I'm sorry if I if I hurt your feelings, but. I always believe that video conferencing eventually will take over. I mean, when I built Google Glass, that was part of the vision that we had this immediate uh, feedback that it could, it could connect people. And we are connecting people now. There's a company called Magic Leap, which builds a headset that gives you a, an incredibly realistic VR impression. So you can walk through the world and see virtual objects. And they're working on being able to walk along with another person in real time in a foreign country, like say, You and I decide, let's do a trip this weekend to Egypt, okay? And we get up in the morning at nine o'clock, we put the Egypt button on, and all of a sudden we are on the pyramids and we feel it. We can, we can breathe the air. We can, we can see the, the pyramids. We can go inside. We can touch each other. We can talk to each other. That's like just 10 years away. You're so close. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, the About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as About You does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integratable into existing solutions. Besides, it is designed and developed by a super smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betz, who also did the first Alphalist podcast with me a few weeks ago. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. And you now disrupted a few spaces or you are disrupting actively a few spaces. Um, if you could start from scratch as of today... Which which challenge would you pick? Uh, I I'm, I feel I I chose okay. Um, I mean I mean I could argue that maybe it was a little bit too long a professor and and and, and as a result became a little bit age, old as a, as a startup founder. All my startup founders are 20 years younger than me. Um, but yeah, so I give you one field that I, I'm very optimistic about, but I have too little time to do something about, which is medicine. Um, That's something that's actually close to my heart because I, I lost several family members to, to things like cancer. Let me talk about cancer for a second. Um, I lost my sister about three years ago to, to breast cancer. She was like 51 years old and it was very tragic. And I lost my mother when she was 49 to breast cancer. I lost a grandfather to colon cancer. My brother survived lung cancer, but it was a traumatic experience in his life. Um, cancer is this thing that The problem with cancer is that it's non-symptomatic for a long time. So you can't feel it. Like if you break your leg, okay, you have instant pain, you go to the hospital and they do something about it. If you have like this little tiny cancer, like your gallbladder cancer or your pancreatic cancer in your body, it might be very curable. Like the right surgery might just remove it, but you don't feel it. And as a result, you won't go to a doctor. And as a result, no one's going to diagnose you. 
Now, what's going to happen next? Well, the cancer grows and grows and grows, and eventually you're going to have a symptom. And for a pancreatic cancer, the first symptom could be a headache. In fact, my brother with his breast cancer, his um, lung cancer, he had back pain. And for half a year, doctors tried to diagnose his back pain, and then they found a cancer uh, of the size of a, of a grapefruit, which was kind of amazing. He survived it. So here's what I'm passionate about. Cancer is one of these diseases that I think are mostly treatable and curable if you catch them early. And the, the problem is not treatment. The problem is detection, it's diagnostics. And the problem is that we only get, go to an exam when we have pain. So why can't we do exams on a daily basis? Like every day we look for cancer. Um, a few years ago, uh, a, a group of students and myself at Stanford um, trained an iPhone using artificial intelligence um, to detect skin cancer. And we measured the iPhone's ability using machine learning to detect melanomas and compared it to board-certified human dermatologists, the best doctors in the world here at Stanford. And we found that the iPhone can do as well as the best human doctors. Okay, That was actually published in Nature. It's a very serious magazine, and it was a very serious study, very important scientific result. Um, that is an example where I think if we just had like cameras surrounding us at home, we could have a skin cancer exam every day. And skin cancer in the Western world is the most common cancer. So we could catch all the skin cancers when they're very, very small. And when a skin cancer is small and, and, and not dangerous yet, say stage zero, stage one, you can virtually, literally remove it with a kitchen knife yourself. Like it's not that hard to treat. It's when it grows too large and it starts spreading around, then it becomes a real problem for you, and then it becomes really hard to cure you. Um, so, so this is not just for, like, like, I mean, you should be able to find breast cancer. There was a um, person I met who built a company around the idea that you have a special bra, Bustenhalter in German, that has, has a temperature probe built in and can measure the temperature. And he made me believe that the cancerous side of your breast uses more energy to grow the cancer and that's detectable in a few minutes of wear by comparing the temperature of your left to your right side and see if it's asymmetric, right? That doesn't, that's not rocket science. That's something that's so straightforward. So if I had time to, to restart my life, um, I would actually really seriously look into medical diagnostics and not just cancer, stroke, heart attack, congestive heart failure, all these are things that I believe you could build much better detection. Alzheimer. Uh, my phone listens to me every day for many, many hours. One of the symptoms of early Alzheimer is a difference in speech. Uh, why can't my phone diagnose if my speech is changing ever so subtle over time? And tell me about it. There might not be a cure for Alzheimer, but I might now then change my lifestyle to delay the onset. There's so many opportunities. So... I hope you never build a Bluetooth bra then. <laughs> Just <Why not>? joking. <laughs> no. Look, if it saves people's lives, if I could make my sister be alive again by inventing something that she would wear, I would do it. Absolutely. 100%. I think it's also a direction that uh, Apple aims towards, right? Like, I guess you also have an Apple Watch potentially. It's, it's really impressive how that also changed in the last years and how much metrics they take um, and uh, what, what can be done with it, right? 
I think the newest version will even remind you to wash your hands. Hmm. That's cool. That's very Impressive. cool. I didn't hear about this. Yes, the Apple Watch is interesting because, uh, in principle, they have um, something built in that's COVID-related. Uh, there's been many reports that uh, COVID victims, um, before they have any symptoms, uh, already have an overgrowth in their lungs that causes them to be oxygen-deprived. And oxygen can be measured very, very easily, blood oxygen. There's something called pulse oximeter, which you can buy on Amazon for 20 euros. Uh, and they can measure the percent oxygen saturation in your blood. Uh, the Apple Watch can do this. And I think at some point in the future, I hope that Apple will activate this function so people can use the Apple Watch to diagnose whether they have a flu or whether they have uh, COVID-19. Looking back at, at, at the world and um, you as a German, you know Germany quite well, I guess. How do you think are our chances um, as, as German economy to, to keep up with the US and China, especially looking at AI? First of all, I think you're doing very well in Germany. Um, I think Germany is, uh, in terms of its impact, its ability to engineer, to export, to, to, to build high-quality product, clearly among the five top nations in the world. And in terms of the history of Germany, I mean, you invented the steam engine, you invented the train, the car, the motorcycle, the telephone, and so many other things. Um, Germany is, is, is just an amazing country. I'm saying this because so often I get to meet Germans who are pessimistic, who feel, oh my God, we're falling behind. Oh my God, we can't do anything. Oh my God, we're so held back by ourselves. And there's an element of truth to it. Um, the, the way to become a great innovator is you have to be a blatant optimist. You have to believe and you have to think and you have to think logically. And you can't be held back by the eternal doubters whose only job is to make you feel miserable because you might have an idea. Um, so I try to avoid those Germans who are pessimists. Sorry. I know there's many of them and they're kind of annoying. I get lots of emails from people who tell me that I'm doing everything wrong in my life. Um, but the reality is... Um, To, to, to really think innovatively, you have to like, get rid of the past and think about the future. What can you do? What, what do you want to accomplish? And again, Germany is, is at the forefront of the world. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence, um, obviously the number one and number two countries are now are the United States and China. Uh, both governments have massively invested in it. In the States, the private industry has massively invested in it. Uh, those investments are not quite there in Germany yet. Um, There's obviously a question whether the private industry or the government should fund it. But at the very least, I would massively improve education in that space. It's a very new topic. Um, you can't have a professor who does the same course for 20 years be relevant when it comes to AI because it's changed so much. Um, and I would, yeah, at the federal level in Germany, really, really think about what kind of investment strategies could exist to make sure that Germany doesn't lose a connection to the best in the world. Looking at AI as a topic, which is also when you when you ask pessimists, you often hear things like, I have a smart speaker at home, uh, which I also have. And my biggest use case is Alexa, 20 minutes timer, please. Alexa, please put milk on my shopping list. And sometimes even that doesn't work. How do you see it? I mean, like also from the from the adoption side of things, I mean, self-driving cars is kind of a very special use case. Do you see wide adoption um, in the economy as well? So first of all, your home speaker, um, I want to also make sure that you're really impressed that this is possible. That's actually quite a capability. About 10 years ago, 
all speech recognition systems were horrible. And if you don't believe it, get yourself a 10-year-old car and look at how you can talk to the car. And a car is a much better environment than a room in terms of, of acoustics. And they were all just horrible. And now you can have free speech and these things understand you. That's a massive progress. And the reason why I want to point this out is I always look at gradients. I look at like change over time. I don't look at the current status quo. In another 10 years, Alexa will pick up everything I say and every conversation that I have and be able to make those searchable. So if I had a conversation with my brother three years ago and I forgot what we talked about, it might be discoverable and I might be able to, to, to fence the person walks into my house or my, my office and I forgot that person's name. Alexa will help me and tell me what that person is, who the person is. Absolutely. Um, but the impact of AI is even broader. Um, here's the, the, the way I see artificial intelligence impact the, the field of work uh, way beyond Alexa. Um, I believe that AI will eventually be able to do everything we do that's highly repetitive. Let me repeat this. Everything we do that's highly repetitive. So what is highly repetitive? Okay. If you are a cab driver, then driving is highly repetitive. And we now know that self-driving cars can take over from cab drivers. It's going to happen in the next few years. If you are an accountant, then a good chunk of your work is highly repetitive. Um, even if you're highly paid, like you're a medical doctor, let's say you are this dermatologist who tries to find skin cancer. The search for skin cancer is highly repetitive. If you're a pilot, flying a plane is highly repetitive. Most lawyers do extremely repetitive work. Say you're a litigation lawyer and you try to find evidence in a stack of millions of papers. Today's AI systems are already better than most paralegals in finding the evidence in stacks of paper. Um, so that means it's going to be major rethinking for, for work, for employment. 70% of us work in offices. Those 70%, 95% of our work is repetitive. So brace for a future where 90% of your work is done by your machines. Okay. I'm totally looking forward to it, to be honest. Maybe the, the, the problem that is connected to that is also that it's kind of a hype um, and people expect a revolution instead of an evolution, right? It's a hype. It's uh, Every time you... You talk about change. Uh, most people f get a bit fearful because it doesn't, they don't know what it means for them. Right? So, like, I could be uh, thinking about what I just said and say, how oh, cool. 95% of my work done by machines for me. I'm going to only do, one, do half a day of uh, work a week and then the rest are just going to vacation. But that, it doesn't feel like this. It feels like, oh, maybe one of 20 people will retain their jobs and 19 of 20 people get fired. We don't know. So what does it mean for me? That's the, the fundamental question. Um, and that's where I've just realized that whatever we invented in the past, uh, cumulatively, it got better for humanity. Um, we have, um, for example, in Germany, she invented uh, nitrogen fertilization for, for agriculture. And that, that, together with irrigation, has made agriculture about 25 times as productive per square meter than in the Middle Ages. And that has led to... Uh, food surplus of unprecedented proportions. We now live in an age where obesity is a bigger problem than starvation and malnutrition. Um, so for me, these changes tend to be positive. They tend to make the world better and not worse. If we have a better way to exchange information, better way to get work done, then be more productive, then be more to go around. And if we do a good job distributing it, then everybody should be happier.
Where do you think are the most impressive, from your personal perspective, the most impressive applications of AI in the current world of business and in science? That's a great question. Most impressive. I mentioned about medical science. There's massive progress in diagnostics uh, where, where companies like Google and others have shown miracle diagnostic results, and that's underway. Um, in industry, um, there is uh, data science and data has become the new gold in almost everything. Um, Udacity, for example, worked with Shell to uh, predict component failures and model drilling strategies that has led to tens of billions of dollars of savings using AI. Um, you find the opportunity for data science and AI in almost anything we do. Let's say um, the conversation we're having right now, the voice quality, sound quality is filtered by AI. The video is being filtered by AI. Um, when you go to Amazon and you uh, look at the layout, this layout of the page in front of you has been set by AI to maximize <laughs> Amazon's profits. Uh, the recommendations you get in Netflix are, are given you by AI. The top 10 links that Google gives you in Google search are returned by AI. Um, so it's very kind of a very pervasive thing that almost every aspect of, of commerce, of, of productivity, of work, um, can be improved by analyzing data. What are the, the, the hardest things I would stumble across if I, if I start building a company that also tries to use machine learning? I think the biggest obstacle is cultural. That is, um, we don't live in a world yet, for most parts, where data is just king. We live in a world where we often have our own judgment, our own opinions, and our own procedures. So when Udacity works with large companies uh, to pursue what's called digital transformation, to, digital transformation is basically go to data science AI uh, in the cloud and so on. Uh, the very first step is to change the mindset and permit for a different method for decision-making that is much more data-driven. That is the biggest obstacle by far. Uh, the second biggest obstacle is the skill set. So it turns out while in theory, Training a neural network to do something cool sounds very easy. In practice, most data sources are ugly. They need a lot of work. Uh, most data is incomplete. It's dynamic. Things change during data acquisition. There's confounding variables, like maybe we have a hot summer or a cold winter, and that all changes, changes everything else. So there's, uh, it's very hard to, to separate what we call causation from correlation, which is like what are actually the control variables you can really move to make a positive impact. And that's where the skill comes in. That's where the training comes in to be understanding how to really tease out of data good information, good decisions. And how do you do that then? Um, well, I can give you the audacity answer. You uh, come and knock on our door and we train you yourself or we train uh, your staff. And we do this by giving you a sequence of projects that let you experience this and do it by hand. Very much like the way you learn how to ride a bicycle, right? Uh, you put it in a bike and uh, first with like training wheels and then you learn that and you get better and better. Uh, it's exactly the same thing for machine learning. We give you data, okay, on training wheels and then you try that out and you get better and better over time. If I, if I want to become a data scientist myself, but if let's say I'm a CTO and I personally, I often felt lost in translation when talking to very scientific people working in data science. What is a good setup to enable data science in modern engineering organizations? What would you say? Well, again, this is what my uh, my company, Udacity, has became, become essentially a market leader in the world. Uh, 
um, to take people from A to B. Um, data science, uh, like any field, has its own jargon, right? If you just look at the prescription of your doctor and try to decipher it, you realize there's a jargon, right? It's not your lung, it's your thorax. Um, same is true for data science. Um, what companies like Udacity do, they demystify it, right? They take you by the hand step by step and take the, the guesswork out of it. And if, um, if you were to study with Udacity and say you get stuck, there's always a technical mentor available 24-7 who's happy to talk to you, right, and help you with whatever you're stuck with. And then over time, you have to learn the jargon, right? There's no way you could be a professional in a field and not understanding the language people use in that field because the language is actually important. So I have to become a bit of a data scientist, but in terms of team structure, collaboration, and so on, do you do you need a special structure to, to embed data science in your organization? Or do you think it can go ahead or go along with um, with all the modern delivery processes like Kanban, Scrum, and so on? Um, you build on existing tools, but what you do need is you need a management that is uh, understands what they're doing but, and understand what to expect, right? So what what is a realistic expectation uh, for data science? Um, what can you not expect? Um How do you compose a team and set rewards and milestones for the team that are realistic and still ambitious? And that takes uh, experience on the side of management. What we find is when a company produces digital transformation and forgets its own management, then the managers become antibodies to the change. And the reason is the managers hear about this great thing, AI. They don't know it. They, they don't happily admit to themselves they don't know it. But they realize if AI wins, they might lose their job. And that's one of the, the, the tricky challenges in transforming organizations. You're in the end deal with a hierarchy of people and you have to change the entire pathway of people from the very bottom to the very top. So uh, I guess then there's no short path to measure if your data science team is actually successful. Um, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, um, if you are as a manager know what data science means and what to expect, um, you'll send them challenges. And I would say in most cases, a good data science team will positively su surprise you. They'll find stuff for you and say, oh my God, that's amazing. I'll give an example. Um, I'm on board of a company called AliveCore that does medical diagnostics of the heart. And they look at a heart waveform to see if in your ECG, there's something to discover. And that team found out that by looking at 30 seconds of your ECG, um, they can say with abs almost absolute certainty whether you're male or female, whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, and that's impressive, right? You wouldn't expect this. So good data scientists, I would say they'll surprise you with something that you didn't know about your own company before. So the measure is not AUC or something. <laughs> Surprising. It, I think it's, I think to be you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a number of things, obviously. Um, but for the audience of the, of the podcast, if you have never looked into this, um, I think the, the thing you will enjoy the most, the, the most delightful moment, someone comes to you said, did you know that? And you'll say, oh my God, I had no clue about that. And what do you think about the future of artificial intelligence? Like there's always AGI, um, artificial general intelligence around the corner. What do you think about it? Um, so for those of you who are not very familiar, there's, there's really two, two types of machine learning. One is They're very specific, right? So you train a, a machine learning agent to 
drive a car or to play chess. And they become really good in playing chess, but nothing else. Right? So my self-driving car software can't fly a plane, for example. And then there's this vision of, of the more general intelligence that people have. Right? We are good at many, many things, and we can cross-fertilize from one skill to another. And to be frank, the progress on specialized AI has been gigantous. The progress on general AI has been very, very weak in the last years. Uh, so there's still something that sets people really apart from computers. The specialized AI is best thought of as pattern recognition. It's like you give a really big data set, like hundreds of thousands of images of skin, for example, with like some have cancer, some have no cancer. And then eventually the machine can find those patterns that distinguish the cancerous skin patches from the non-cancerous skin patches. But that's very, very specialized. Like face recognition is very specialized. It's a specialized AI. You train the AI to recognize faces with millions of images, and that's what it does. But what's really missing, we don't have today at all, is this general intelligence solution, like the Albert Einstein AI that sits down and says, oh my God, all these physics equations are wrong. We have to invent spatial relativity. And will it come? I hope so. Um, I really hope so, because I mean, AI is very young. The field was invented in 1956. Machine learning might go back to the 1930s. That's maybe 90 years in age, depending how you count. But humanity is 300,000 years old. So there's a big of difference between us. For most of these 300,000 years, we would either be hunters or gatherers or eventually farmers. Um, but, but the AI itself is like a blink of history in comparison. So if we wait another 50 years, I'm very convinced you're going to have general artificial intelligence. Okay, and that will then start setting itself new goals, or how the, will that work? Yes, I, I am a firm believer that the technology we build, we build to serve people. And I'm a very firm believer that we have to keep it this way. That is, we have to control what we build. Right? So for me, an AI is a tool set. It's a tool, a very potent tool to find patterns in data. And if I look at the right data and the right patterns, I might find amazing patterns and use them for my advantage. Um, Every tool um, can be abused, like a kitchen knife is a tool, right? And the kitchen knife helps me cut my produce, but kitchen knives have been abused to hurt people. Uh, so the, the ethics and the decision how to use the tool has to be staying with the people. If we were to render like decision-making of our human life and death entirely to the machines, I think it would be really bad for us. And that, that, I think we just shouldn't do this. We can do this in certain cases. I mean, there's certainly surgical equipment, like life, maintain, I mean, for people who are gravely ill, machines that, that keep them alive, that do make decisions uh, as to how to keep people alive. But I think we should do this in a very confined way, and we should always understand the responsibility is with us, the people, not the machines. Okay. So um, I think kitchen knives, knives um, I, can, I can buy it in, in a shop uh, every moment. I, I want to buy a kitchen knife. Um, should AI be regulated in a way? It's way too early to regulate AI. It's way too early. Um, and I think what we should really regulate is the business practice around using AI. So if I use AI to steal secrets or to cyber attack somebody else, I deserve to be locked up. There's no question in my mind. Um, but there's there's nothing that is that that, that is easily regulated. You, you shouldn't regulate the size of machines or the number of data points. Um, It's way too early. I think the time you should regulate is when you feel there's a systematic abuse of something and a regulatory process can fix that. 
Like if you have precedent of AI being used in a certain way that you think is inappropriate from a moral perspective and society agrees it shouldn't be used this way, then that's the time when you should regulate and not before. Discussing about uh, ethics in AI, could we just invent a brain-computer interface and let AI do the large-scale uh, rational reasoning while the brain does ethics? I would love to do this. I would love to have an effective brain-computer interface. In fact, at Google X, we looked at this and we, we felt we couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Oh, my God. I mean, if I had, for example, if I could remember every person I saw in my life uh, and what the last conversation was, that would be so great. If I could know every fact or speak every language, how cool would that be? And we are getting close. Um, we are not at the point where we have a physical interface, but one of the aspirations of Google Glass was uh, to really record everything you do and being able to learn from it so it would become your second brain. Uh, and I think we are going in this direction. We are now seeing AI systems being deployed, for example, to overlook salespeople, understand what a good sales conversation looks like, and then helping people become better salespeople. And while this is not quite yet in our brain, the, the wetware is missing, it is really close to our brains. Um, we are really close to the human eye, to the human ear, to the human keyboard, Uh, that we really get to the point that we have an almost brain-computer interface. So I can't wait for this to complete, and I'd be the first one to volunteer my brain to put an appropriate interface in there with the benefit that all of a sudden I know everything. And yeah, I can also imagine that there's like a more effective way than written words or spoken words um, to, to communicate. Yeah, um, one of the interesting findings is um, you find that... Um, that AI has been able to learn incredibly complex concepts, like the best Go players in the world, the best chess players in the world are AI. The best systems to diagnose skin cancer, as I mentioned, is AI now. Um, and you wonder why. Um, and I come to believe that, that one of the reasons why these systems are so good is the reasons why people are so good, which is when we learn, we can learn in multiple ways. We can learn based on language. We can learn text. We can learn rules and regulations. But for the vast majority of what we've learned in our lives and vast majority of our skills, there is no language equivalent. Like, for example, we all know how to walk, or most of us know how to walk. And we learned this when we were like one year old. And no one has ever written down the equations of walking. It's a, it's a miracle that people can walk and we don't understand it. We just don't understand it scientifically. And I believe the fact that we have this very rich brain with like 10 to the 14th interconnections is a big factor that makes walk possible or visual recognition, visual cortex um, possible. That is, or language. No one knows the rules of language. Um, and and that we, we have this wet where these complicated things that can learn these things, but they cannot be expressed in words. And so when you look at um, our skin cancer neural network, that neural network is similarly structured to our human brains. And it is able to detect skin cancer from non-skin cancer, as I mentioned, as good as the best human doctors. But it can't express why. It can't tell you why. It can't give you a rule. It just can give you the answer. And I think that's true for people. We, we do a lot of stuff. We, we speak. We, we cry. We walk. We run. Um, no one can tell you how to do this. You just do it. So there's a, there's a cosmos of, of things that, that that's learnable and it's masterable. It cannot be expressed in words. And I think language is the thing that holds us back. If we can go beyond language in a way we communicate, where we learn, then, then we can learn 10,000 times as much as we can learn today. 10,000 times faster, right? Yeah. Like, th look at this. So 
In terms of speed, um, my best example is, again, the school self-driving car. All of us who drive cars probably made a driving mistake at some point. Yeah. So what happens when you make a mistake? Like say you have an accident or something, or even just run a red light. Um, you, you wake up and realize, wow, shit, I made a mistake. And then, and then you learn from it, right? So you hopefully don't make the same mistake again. That'd be stupid. Uh, but by and large, all of us have to make our own mistakes. And we all make the same mistakes, right? All of us run a stop sign at some point or a red light, okay? Now, in self-driving cars, the way it was rigged up is when a Google self-driving car made a mistake, it would also learn from it, right? It would come home. Maybe this human safety driver took over and, and the car was a little bit upset and it comes home and, yeah, the car ran a stop sign. And then the car learned not to run a stop sign. But here's the difference. Now, not just this one car has learned not to run a stop sign, but all the self-driving cars, including all future unborn cars, will be born with that skill in their brains, right? That's like saying, let's say you have a PhD, or you say you speak five languages, okay? You've learned five languages. How cool is this? That all your children and your grandchildren also are born with five languages. That, that is, that is the, the capability of AI that sets AI apart from us. Um, we have some of this. I mean, we accomplished this through the printing press. The printing press was a way to get people's brains into book form and distribute it. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing so insanely well, why we had the period of enlightenment and the scientific revolution, because we are able to distribute learned knowledge much faster. But we're still slow in comparison to AI. When you, when you think about AI, AI is kind of the new book. It's like the book on steroids. It's like the thing that can write itself and distribute itself and pick up all these patterns. It's just going to be so much better than Gutenberg's printing press. And that's where we are. I once saw a talk by Jürgen Schmidhuber, um, like also a, a fellow professor from Germany, I guess you know him, uh, the inventor of long short term memory. Um, like he predicted um, a rather dark future for, for, for humanity uh, with like flying drones, flying to Mars anytime soon. And uh, the idea that um, humanity might not matter too much. I mean, it wasn't pessimistic. It was in a way um, just the case that it, didn't matter in, in, in his ideas. Uh, how do you think about it? Will, will humanity still still matter? I, I believe we will, honestly. I know that lots of people have made scary predictions from Elon Musk to Steve Hawkins to Bill Gates. Others have, have, have made kind of these negative nihilistic uh, predictions that we basically become breakfast for AI and AI will just eat us for breakfast or keep us around like chicken. Um, and of course, eventually, I don't know, um, but my gut feeling is that we just don't want this. Like these are not good products. Like who would buy this kind of crap? Uh, if that's, that's what we've done such a great job. Like when I was a kid in Germany, uh, the, the hottest book that we had to all read in school. And I was about, about 16 years old, 1984 by George Orwell, coincidentally written in 19, actually 49, people often say 48, but like, like a good, almost 40 years ahead of 1984. And he had envisioned that people at home have what's called a telescreen. A telescreen is a, it's basically a display and a speaker and a microphone, okay? Um, and he had laid out how the government used the telescreen to observe every human conversation and enslave people, and not just their, their conversations, their free will, their thought and everything. Um, now, it turns out I have a telescreen at home. I have an iPad and I have an Amazon Alexa. And these things together are the, the same as a telescreen. And 
none of these things have enslaved me. In fact, they have empowered me. Why? Because we use technology for the betterment of the human race, not for suppressing ourselves. Right? We have moved from ages of slavery to democracy because it's better. It works better. It makes us better off. We have, we have moved into an era of unprecedented peace. Europe used to be the locus of massive amounts of wars, sometimes hundreds of years. There were 26 wars between France and Britain in the last 1,000 years. It's unimaginable there's going to be a war again, despite the fact we have better weapons today than ever before. So I think there's something good in the, in the human soul, good in us people, that just makes me believe that all these negative predictions are hogwashes. They're like ways to make people fearful, and that's it. And jumping a bit back in your past, um, what was the, the first program that you have actually written yourself and on, on which computer was it? Um, I was, um, um, I had a Texas Instrument 57. <laughs> It's a programmable pocket calculator that I spent endless hours programming. And then eventually I found uh, there was a local Quelle department store. Quelle was used to be the, uh, the Amazon of its time, a catalog mail order place. Um, they disappeared and they had a Commodore C64, which was a, um, a keyboard that was plugged into a television. Um, and I would, after school, um, write software. And unfortunately, when they closed the store in the evening, they switched off the computer and all my software was erased. So I had to memorize my software, type it in the next day faster than the day before, and then build on it and build more software. So I became really good in typing what I typed yesterday and was erased overnight. Um, These were the good old days. Um, in fact, I still uh, remember punch cards as a way to program computers. Uh, no one on your show will ever know what I'm talking about. Uh, Google it. Um, it's, it's almost like Gutenberg. It's like makes it dates me how old I am. Um, but yeah, that was it was a great time. Um, at a time when no one else had computers, like computers were not a common thing. There were no things as personal computers. And today, are you still in touch with code? Oh yeah. Uh, two weeks ago, I spent a whole week coding. A big simulation of airplanes. In Jupyter notebooks, or what? What do you use no, these days? I use Python. I use Python. I like. I love MATLAB. I love Python. Um, I've done some work in Julia, which is a beautiful prototyping language. Uh, most of my my life, I program in C plus plus, which is as of today rather old school. But yeah, well, I'm 53. <laughs> Do you have a favorite book or tool you would recommend to everyone you meet right now? Um, for normal people, I would always recommend Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now book. Um, it's a book, a positive book on the history of humanity. And it does away with all these myths that, that things are getting worse, worse, worse. It's a beautiful scientific book um, on data, how the world has actually changed in the last hundreds of years. Stephen Pinker, Enlightenment Now. For business people... Um, I would say the, the best book I know is uh, by Jeffrey Moore, um, Crossing the Chasm. It's a beautiful marketing business book, and any startup founder should read it because that book has so much depth about customer behavior that is counterintuitive that will really change your company. If your Tesla was a time machine and we could now enable the autopilot and travel back to Bonn uh, back in the days, what would you whisper into young Sebastian's ears back then? I'd say be less fearful. I'd say universe, no guilt, no fear. That's the thing I wish I'd understood back in the day. Um, no fear because, look, when you try something new, you're going to make mistakes, right? 
So my rule is uh, I can make any mistake, but I can only make it once. I can't make it twice. Uh, but the first time I make it, I learn something and I feel good about it. That's something I think that wasn't in my German upbringing at the time. And then no guilt. Um, I think guilt is uniformly bad. It's just useless. It, it, people use it to control you. You control yourself. You become your own slave. Um, and like if you if you really mean badly, right, then you have no guilt to begin with. But guilt is you meant really well, but it came across the wrong way. And that can happen. Uh, it's not a big deal. Let's be honest, live up to it. But but don't be driven by guilt. Guilt is just a really bad emotion. Thanks a lot, Sebastian. Um, it totally was an yes. honor to talk to you. And we're looking forward to, if the COVID situation allows it, welcome you in Hamburg in 2021. Yeah, looking forward to it. Hey, Tobias, thanks so much. Bye-bye. AI is always a nice topic to talk about. By the way, I'm one of the ambassadors of the local AI initiative here in Hamburg, the Artificial Intelligence Center Hamburg, eric-hamburg.de. And again, kudos go out to our sponsors, the About You Cloud. If you want to know more, write to hello at aboutyou.com and Fastly, the challenger in the CDN market. If you want to know more, please visit fastly.com slash alphalist. Dieser Podcast wird produziert von Podstars. Bye. OMR.